series, which when we're talking about the idea of discipleship, the idea of Christian growth, how we develop our lives to look more and more like Christ. And it's a really amazing thing. You know, God has huge aspiration for your life. Did you know that this morning? That he has dreams, plans, hopes for you beyond what you might possibly imagine. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. He can make the filthiest and feeblest of us into bright, immortal creatures. Pulsating all through us with such radiance and goodness and greatness as we can now not imagine. He can turn all of us, each one of us, into a bright stainless mirror that reflects back to him on a smaller scale his own boundless goodness and wisdom and love and delight. Wow. How does that make you feel this morning? I think in some respects it's kind of bittersweet because on the one hand you say, well, that's what I want. But on the other hand you might say, but how far away am I from that? Tim Keller once said, perhaps we are all like caterpillars yearning to be butterflies. See, I think when you look at Jesus Christ and you look at his power and yet his gentleness and you look at his majesty and yet his humility and you see this tremendous firm conviction and yet total openness and approachability. When you see him and you see that the Bible says that we can be like him, Well, we feel like caterpillars. Maybe not quite as ugly as this fella. (laughs) Squidgy, green, slow, kind of funky thing. And you may be this morning, you're looking at others and thinking, they are like butterflies compared to me. And it seems good Good to be true. And unfortunately, unlike a caterpillar that just hibernates for a short while and suddenly transforms into something beautiful, the Bible tells us that there is a process by which we grow, blossom, and are transformed. And it's the process of discipleship, of growth. And we're going to look at some words from Jesus that give us further thought to that idea this morning as we explore this concept and look in the words of Jesus that, or how we are truly his disciples. If you have a Bible, you might want to turn to John chapter 8 this morning. We're only looking at a very few verses, so don't worry too much. It's a short passage. We've only got time for this bit, really. But here we go. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. You know what the Bible says about freedom, and what society say about freedom, are two really very different things. But I think what they do agree on, in regards to freedom, 
is what freedom actually feels like. And I hope you can agree in some ways on this definition. If you simply define freedom in terms of how it feels, perhaps then it's something like this. Freedom is the fulfillment that comes when you're doing what you most deeply desire. The difference between what the Bible says and what society says is the Bible has a different worldview. It says if you know, if you know what man, that man is not actually what he ought to be, if you know that human beings, well, they might be great, but actually they're actually full of, well, full of challenges. To a degree, they're warped, they're selfish, they're self-absorbed, they're sinful. And therefore our desires are at war with one another and they're conflicting and freedom is not necessarily the ability to do anything you want. But freedom happens when actually our lives, when we obey our deepest desires, the ones that God put in there from the beginning. The one that God's designed us with, which many of us I'd say would probably be unconscious of in some respects. And because the thing that we most desire to do is to be fulfilled by submitting to our creator, which we're built to do, the Holy Spirit then will open our eyes and we will become conscious of what it's like to live at one, at peace with our creator. And therefore we will find fulfillment and in that we will find freedom. And the Bible says this only happens, this only happens when you're willing to be completely dependent on God. That's the day, the Bible says, you will know what real freedom is. And what this passage lays out is kind of three principles around that. I'd like to show you them this morning and go through them with a few moments. And it begins with this idea of personal devotion, which we touched on last week, if you were here. The idea of Christ, God, Jesus being Lord of our lives. And this is another aspect on that concept, I guess. When Jesus says, if you hold to my teachings, you are really you're my disciples, what Jesus doesn't want is people who are simply robots who follow a bunch of rules, who are going through emotions, trying to obey all the rules they understand have been laid out, the regulations, if you like. He wants people who make him Lord and he wants people who give him allegiance, yes, but this is a personal thing. The reason people, Christians, talk about obeying God is because we want you to, to treat God as a person. See, how do you relate to impersonal objects? How do you relate to chairs, to radios, to televisions? Well, they have no will of their own, so they're just there to be used. You have an impersonal object, you have no goals, it has no goals, so you use it for your goals. That's how you treat an object, right? Which is hopefully different to how we treat people. When you have a personal relationship with someone, you find out what that person's will is. You find out what that person's desires are. You, you adapt, you accommodate. And the more you love and you experience that person, that, that somebody, 
the more of a joy it becomes to adapt, actually to seek out those person's desires and to try and please them. And the more intimate the relationship is, the more you find you need to choose the will of that person rather than just use that person. I think we all understand that. I think we understand that. And so you can see then, it's not about rules in one sense. It's actually, actually it's even possible to make rules, moral rules, something of our own agenda, to use them. You can use them in a way of making us feel better about ourselves. Making us feel better about other people. Actually, we can use rules or following rules to enable us to look down on others. Or perhaps bargain with God that actually would do something from him due to our list of rules that we've obeyed this week. But real obedience comes and says, I recognise you're a person, I recognise who you are, you have a will, and actually, I want to please you. See, one of the reasons, actually, that many of these Eastern Europeans and New Age religions are so interesting is that, actually, there's millions of varieties of them, but they all kind of land on one thing, that God is not a person. We can talk to God as a he, but basically he doesn't have a personality. He can't talk to you. You can't talk to him. He's like a force, you know? May the force be with you. The force is something you use, you know? We use the force to deal with Darth Vader. The force is something... But you don't sit down with it and say, Lord, there's something wrong in the way that I'm treating my wife. There's something wrong with the way I'm doing business. So you don't have a God in that particular worldview who talks. You don't have a God who speaks in propositions, who says, do this. Don't do that. You don't have a person. As a result, you can, have, you can use him like a TV set. But the God of the Bible is a person. And I guess the question we're faced with always is, do we want a person? Because it takes effort. Do you want a person who loves you? Do you want a person who's your heavenly father? A person who perhaps you need to obey? That's the real issue in many respects. Put another way, is there an element that you're willing to give up control for that person? The Bible says that if you live for money, you're controlled by money. If you live for reputation, you're controlled by reputation. These things will master you before you can, before you can even see it. You do not control yourself when it comes to these things often. And James Smith, in his amazing book, This Power of Spiritual Habit, well, he tells a story. Perhaps this is a better way of explaining. He tells a story of two people. I'm going to read you this story now. There's two people and they go to a party. And they're both deeply insulted by somebody who was just waiting for them to show up at this party so he could put them down. I hope you've not been to a party like that. And the first person, what he does, well, he gets angry. 
First, he has to put this guy in this place. And secondly, he goes home and he tosses and turns in bed all night at the outrage. And the next day, he gets up and he slanders the person to everybody he can and possibly get on the phone, you know. And then he feels guilty. But he also feels upset because maybe what the guy said was right. Maybe that's why he feels so upset. Maybe he is as bad as all that. And then he gets depressed. And he goes back to bed. Great day. Why? Because actually in this instance, his ego is his own master. And his own ego just can't take that criticism. But there's a second person who goes to this party. And the same sort of things happen. But this person's a Christian. And this person has a different master. So he's put down. And he sits there. And he dwells on it. He remembers his salvation. And in his mind he says, Ah, somebody's called my bluff. Somebody has just said, I'm not quite the hot stuff I thought I was. Well, actually, that was just what I was saying to God yesterday. In prayer anyway. So why am I so offended when somebody else is saying what I just said to God? Well, it hurts, and to some degree, it's unfair. But actually, only if he knew, if he only knew the really bad things about me, my gosh, what a field day he could have. But the important thing is that God knows these things about me, and that's been dealt with. And what that man said, well, that was bad and that was actually painful. But I don't actually have to hate him. Actually, in a very uncomfortable and in a very perverted way, it's only telling me really what I know to be true anyway. And God and I, well, God and I have dealt with that. And God accepts me and loves me. And I don't have to be I don't have to be enslaved to those words or to that guy. Do you see that the person, this person is continuing the truth because Jesus is his master. And therefore he's liberated. He moves on in his life. If you continue in my truth, you're my disciples, then you'll be free. something extraordinary about this truth about this discipleship about this submission that brings us to a place if we let it of real freedom so the second thing you have to do having made that decision is you've got some work to do see devotion is not a one time thing I make Jesus Lord, Jesus your Lord, and I'm all good. It doesn't really work like that. It's a bit like marriage. My son, I embarrass him now. He's on the coffee shop today. He's getting married in a few months' time, talking about marriage with him. And it's easy to say, well, I went there, said a few vows. I've got a great marriage. 
But some of you are knowingly smiling at me saying, that's not how it works. Because frankly, we haven't delivered anything yet. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, if you continue, other words use different words like abide or to rest, to stay put. The Greek word meno means to, to actually take up residence in my word, to settle down, to live in it. Doesn't mean run by it in the morning, grab a couple of verses. Now, I'm not criticizing Lecto, it's fantastic. It's a beginning, definitely. But we can't talk about the Word of God on a Sunday and then the rest of the week or the rest of the day act like a lawless person. We can't say in my private life I'm very obedient, but in my public life I can act like anything I want or vice versa. There are certain things that we have to do. We have to stay in it and we have to live in it. This is what the Bible means when it says, let the word of God richly dwell in you. It's not enough to know and say, I know I'm safe by grace alone. I realize that God is in control of all things. I know that. I could take a test on it. Give me a few passages. I'll tell you where they are. I know these things you're telling me. But do you worry? Do you toss and turn when somebody criticizes you? Do you find in yourself going into self-pity for the week? Then perhaps we don't know it as well as we think. It's one thing to recognize it, to say, yeah, I read that, I know that, I know that bit. It's another thing to push it to the center of our lives. And this is what it means to continue. So Jesus says, if you know this truth, this truth will set you free. Yes, maybe ideologically, but actually, practically, in reality, this will liberate your life. We've already alluded to this, but freedom actually always comes from discipline. Did you know that? There may be some certain realms like oppression and captivity. You can think of places, I'm sure, like Romania or South Africa where people can go legitimately look and say they threw off mastery and actually the self-rule and now they're free. That's not what we're talking about in the spiritual realm. See, when I watch people, I watch, watch Tom or I watch Joe and all the other guys and I, I get slightly nervous because I realise that they just sit, they just stand there playing along, you know. And they're playing what we've asked them to play, but my guess is they just get a lot of enjoyment from just playing. When nobody's around, they can just play. And it must be a tremendous thing to have that kind of, that expression, that gift, that they can just release something of themselves. But you know, right? didn't just happen. The reason they have this freedom, the reason they're able to do these things is because, well, somebody sat over them probably and said, 30 minutes, scales, notes, let's go. 
and then an hour, scales, notes, and your fingers are hurting, your wrists hurt, but you play some more and you practice and you practice and it becomes something and you realize you got to this place of freedom that they have and they enjoy through endeavor and discipline. I never made it that way. 30 minutes, never managed much more than that, to be honest with you. But, but you realize this is the place of freedom they got to. You gave yourself, you enslaved that instrument in one sense. So today it's an instrument of freedom. That's the way it is. When you see a sailboat out on the water, it's sailing like it is because it was built according to the laws of wind and the surf. That's what it was meant for. And whoever's out there is using it in accord with the laws of the wind and the surf. And it goes like the wind because it's obeying what it's there for. And the driver and the captain, I guess you call them, is obeying his design and he's experiencing what the freedom that brings. The liberty is just to be blown by the wind. But if he was to say, you know what, I'm tired. I'm tired of the ocean. I'm going to go up Hammersham High Street in my boat. I want to be free. I'm free, I can go up there if I want to. Oh yeah, you can. You get a rope, I suppose, and drag it along the high street. You could stand on its side, it might make a mess, it might make some noise. See, freedom for the boat is obeying the will of its designer. It was built to go in order, and you could go down the high street. The point is, we're freed by obedience by obeying the will of our designer. See, people have a tendency to say, well, freedom is doing whatever you want to do. Whatever you want to do. But I'm not sure that's true. See, believe it or not, believe it or not, I'd like to be really slim and healthy. Don't laugh, some of you. My slides have just got stuck. But. but I also have another desire. I have another desire. And that is for Ben and Jerry's Chunky Monkey. <laughs> That's good, right? Yeah. Now, freedom for me, well, it's, it's, it's difficult because these two, are very, these two things are very strong desires. And I don't know which one to do. You see, they're totally contradictory. And in one sense, I could find freedom in doing both. But will I find freedom in doing both? It's a good question. For me, I know which one will give me, well, make me physically healthy, but also I want to gratify my need for delicious ice cream. See, what I have to be free what I have to be to do to be free is not to do what I want, but to ditch the feelings that enslave me. And essentially what Jesus says here is the truth. The truth will set you free. God is the truth and his word to us here in the scripture, in the scriptures, the Bible. He says this alone can 
will tell you which of the desires enslave and which of the desires free. Because God knows who you are. God knows how you're built. God knows the consequences of your behavior. And God has aspiration and dream and vision for your life. And because he's the designer, because we understand that he's the creator, then we can accept, I hope, that he does know best. One of my favorite programs on telly, some of you recognize this genius of a man, Stephen Fletcher, he's, um, he mends clocks and devices that are clockwork. He's an extraordinary craftsman. And one of the great things is when you watch the show, um, a repair shop, they bring things to Steve, these clocks that look absolutely wrecked. And somehow, because he knows what he's doing, he puts them back together. The other day they had this clock and it was, someone had tried to fix it, they'd filled it with oil thinking that that's a good idea, but of course the oil had got all this grit that adhered to it and it basically, it ground it to a stop. And Steve, you watched him take it apart and he took these great big long springs about that big that stretched meters and he wiped them clean and he polished them up and he assembled it back in the right way and this clock ticked perfectly like it was meant to. When we bring ourselves to God, it's a similar thing. We bring ourselves to the export, the designer, the one who can and will, if we follow him, if we're obedient to him, as we submit ourselves to him, as we let him minister in our lives, transform us. It might take a while. It might be slow at times. But he will do it. And in that, we will know what it is to be free. The deepest desires. Let me close with this. My time's gone. Psalm chapter one, it tells us about a godly man an ungodly man. It says the godly man is like an evergreen tree in season. He bears fruit. He's steady. He endures. He's always growing. And you can look at that and say, well, that, that's, I wish I was like that. He's always on an even kill. He's always bearing fruit. He's always producing. And it says there's a wicked man. And it's just not so. The wicked man is like chaff driven away, cast to the wind. And you say, oh, I don't want to be the wicked man. And you're reading someone, you're looking and you think, I don't want to be, I want to be the godly man. And what's the, well, what's the sign of the godly man in this text? What is, what's the psalmist saying is the sign of a godly man? So the Bible says the godly man is not somebody who prays day and night, although he might do. It doesn't say the godly man is the one who witnesses on the street corners every morning and every evening with great fervor, although he might do. 
The godly man is the man who loves God, telling him what to do. The mark of the godly man is he likes to be changed to conform to how God would have him. The mark of the godly man, it says, says, Lord, show me where I should change and I'll do it. Show me where I should obey and I'll do it even when it's hard. I'll do it. That's between the difference between the evergreen and the chaff. And the question that Jesus raises in this passage, the question the disciple raises is, which are we? Evergreen or chaff? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that really, that Jesus comes with his Father's heart for us, which is so much bigger, so much great, so great, much greater than we can possibly imagine. And he has plans and purposes for our life. He has hope and aspiration. And he wants the very best for us. And we thank you, Father, that not only that, but because you made us in you, we are in safe hands. So, Father, I pray that as we've sung this morning, as we thought this morning, that you would draw us in. That, Father, we would be prepared to submit ourselves to your hand upon our life that you may lead, guide, shape, mold, draw us, teach us. So that we might be, each one of us, mirrors that reflect back to you boundless goodness your wisdom your love your delight and that we will know your truth and that your truth will set us free Amen